This is Ovinology. Shepherds, as we untangle the history of the world, it's a little daunting to figure out an order. Do we explore chronologically? Do we travel by breed? How do we create a hierarchy of world cultures? Like Gelfling, no tribe is above another. Sheep and humans inextricably linked. We are all Thra. Okay, let's throw a dart at the map. We'll play this like, where in the world is Carmen Sandiego? The Roman Empire! I'm actually going to start before the Romans with Neolithic man. And woman. Let's travel ever so briefly to what's now Bulgaria, specifically the settlement of Yabolkovo. 8,000 years ago, this proto-city was cutting edge in culinary arts and tech. The people there domesticated chickens before anyone else in Europe, and evidence shows they were also raising large herds of pigs and ruminants. The citizens of Yabolkovo had a taste for fine dining. Their bone pits show that only an estimated 3% of their diet came from hunting, and the average diet was quite rich. In addition to goose, swan, chicken, pork, beef, snail, and fish, these people made spelt bread, grew pistachios, fermented wine, and made both white and yellow cheese. The local sour apple beer was probably world famous at the time, since the name of the settlement comes from Yabalka, which is Bulgarian for apple. How do you like them apples? All right, jump in the sheep wagon. We're going to Italy. Pre-Romans, the Etruscans ate a lot of pork and chicken. Food, rich food, was so important that a lot of people were even buried with their utensils. You know, in case somebody's serving up coco vin while you're cruising the river Styx. Is that a thing? Wouldn't want to miss out on a buffet. As Roman culture developed and cities grew, food production got pushed outside the city limits. Their system was actually a lot like ours. Farmers grow food in rural areas that shipped in to feed the urban population. Some city dwellers had a garden and many raised chickens and pigs for their own consumption. Now, from cavemen to the stewards, you'll hear continuously about these rich diets that even average folk ate. In fact, as late as the 1800s, people's daily caloric intake rivaled that of an Olympic athlete. A lot of high-fat meat, a lot of pies, both sweet and savory. Why? Well, fat aids in the preservation of food, and wrapping it in a fatty crust made with lard or butter only serves to increase the storage time. Refrigeration wasn't a thing. The ice house didn't come into vogue until King Charles I, who also brought the gift of ice cream to the UK. Romans were really smart, but there's not a lot of ice floating around the Mediterranean. So for early Romans, lots of fat and lots of happy goats, pigs, and poultry with bouts of occasional steak. Historians postulate that the Greeks raised sheep before the Romans got hold of them. P.S. Is it still PC to say the Greeks? Shouldn't it be persons who identified as part of ancient, though contemporary to them, Greco culture? Imagine, if you will. It's another sunny morning in Greece. You wake up, don a fine wool tunic, grab your favorite staff, tuck a ball of tanging homemade cheese into your pocket or satchel, and head outside. 
The azure sea sparkles for miles to one side of you, and a warm breeze tickles your nose with an aromatic blend of lavender, rosemary, thyme, myrtle, and juniper. <sighs> you walk to the olive grove, where your fine fleece sheep are grazing. You make sure they have water, and you'll water them again at midday. The sheep pretty much graze where they want, but you oversee the pattern, keeping their backs to the sun. You might use blade shears to shear them, or sit next to a ewe you've tied to an olive tree and milk her, or kill and skin one for dinner in a hide. I don't presume to know your ancient Greek life. In ancient Greco-Roman culture, sheep were the province of women. Contrast this with ancient Egypt, where men worked the looms. As we explore history, you'll find that sheep are nearly always linked to gendered work, but not always to women. It reminds me a lot of librarians. At first, Dewey was like, my system's only for women whose silly brains don't get enough oxygen because of corsets. Well, he probably didn't say that last part. And women were like, great, thanks for the job we're great at. And men suddenly went, oh no, women are getting better than us at a system one of us invented. We now want that job as well. But sheep. Lest we forget the Roman propensity to make everything about them, their self-crafted origin story claims that Romulus and Remus, the twins abandoned by their wolf mother, were raised by a shepherd named Faustulus and his wife, who probably spent a lot of time mopping the floor and regretting that deodorant hadn't been invented yet. So in Roman culture, sheep and women got real tight. We milked, made cheese, sheared, spun, wove, and moved the sheep up into the hills during the summer. If you follow the fiber shed movement at all, you'll have run across the term transhumans. Basically, that means humans and animals migrating seasonally to provide constant forage as opposed to centuriation, the dividing of land into plots where animals must be stabled or kept in a fold. And we can further divide Roman ranches into latifundia. This is like Texas, tens of thousands of sheep stretching for miles. Cato's ideal ranch of 100 head max and sharecropping, like today's managed grazing where orchard or landowners would lease sheep to graze for a season. Get this. According to Varro, the actual hands-on work with sheep was done by women, as well as making the meals for the transhumans group. Each group consisted of about a thousand head with one shepherd per 20 sheep and pack animals for their gear, usually goats. But the flock master was a man, and he got to live back on the ranch. If your sheep stayed on your property, one to two herdsmen per hundred sheep was considered sufficient. The herdsmen, why men, should be vigilant and energetic, threaten with voice and staff, but never throw anything or sit down or stray from the flock. Like sheep in the Alps, Roman sheep were brought into Ovilia, little shelters in the mountains, at night for protection from predators. Now the pack animals would have had cratis oresia, or wicker hurdles, strapped to them. These reed or willow frames would make not only the base of the Ovilia, but the fences outside them as well. Thoughtfully, the Ovilia included lambing jugs and quarantine pens. The Romans used straw, ferns, oak leaves, and hand-plucked grass for bedding. So fancy, so schmancy. Shelters on the ranch, meanwhile, were permanent three-sided structures, like the run-in shelter on our farm. 
Sources disagree on which way the barn ought to face, although if you mash all the advice together, the shelter would pretty much face southeast. Guess who else's barns face southeast? Modern farmers. Now, unlike our modern regime, the Romans didn't depend on hay to feed their sheep and cattle through the winter. Instead, according to Pliny and Cato, they stockpiled leaves. Frankly, I would rather have been a Roman sheep enjoying the following winter buffet. Elder, fig, and poplar leaves. Thyme. Hay chaff. Veg. Barley. Chickpea, if your farmer could afford it. Straw. Grape dregs. Yum. Bran, clover, willow, and broom. Doesn't that sound better than dried old Timothy and fescue? Palladius, rich white Roman Gaul, references tools to clip and shear, leather coats with hoods, boots, leggings, and mittens. His gardening tips are particularly and specifically fun. <clears throat> Asses dung is best to make a garden with. Sheep's dung is next, and after that the goats, also horses and mares, but swine's dung is the worst of all this lot. Good to know. According to Virgil and Pliny, Palladius's info is physically relevant. Much like today, do we see a theme? Sheep were run onto harvested cropland and left to graze for extended periods so they could fertilize the acreage. Likewise, in the spring, seeds would be thinly sown, a layer of leaves distributed to provide fodder, and the sheep would both set the seeds and till in manure as they grazed across the fields. Work smarter, not harder. Romans also fertilized their apple trees with sheep manure and wood ash, and the healed wounds in vines, you know they love their wine, by binding the wound with sheep dung. Again, in case I lost your attention, that's for healing plants, not wounds in people. Sheep, the humble middle children of the meat world, did make it into lore and epic. Ever heard of Jason and the Argonauts, in which Jason is questing for the Golden Fleece? Ulysses escaped the Cyclops by clinging to the belly of a ram. Meanwhile, his queen, Penelope, kept her suitors at bay by weaving all day and unraveling what she'd woven every night. Those of you who have ever warped a loom know what torment that must have been. Their relationship was rock solid, y'all. Wool features with less attached women as well, if we can call them that. Salome's sheer veils, as in Dance of the Seven Veils, were probably fine-spun wool, as was the carpet Cleopatra used to smuggle herself into Julius Caesar's palace. And then his bed. The Old Testament of the Bible, which predates Roman rule, makes no less than 300 references to sheep and lambs. Joseph's multicolored coat was wool. In the New Testament, which is during Roman rule, soldiers drew lots for Jesus's wool cloak. I hope whoever won it had a bare-breasted virgin at his disposal. Somehow, these girls were supposed to effectively beat away wool moths and beetles? If a bare-breasted virgin was unavailable, one could drop a sachet of cow manure and garlic into their sock drawer. Then, as now, wool came in a variety of natural colors. Albus, meaning white. Direct ripoff, Dumbledore the White, from the more epic Gandalf the White Wizard. Fight me. Niger, dark brown or black. Caracanus, which was a deep black. And Fuscus, brown with a tinge of red.
Pulis, evidently a brownish-black uh, color associated with mourning, came from sheep either in south of Italy or Liguria, a region in the northwest peninsula. In the Po River Valley in northern Italy, a breed of sheep was developed that produced fine white wool that could be woven into a gossamer-like fabric. Salome's veil again. Remember how regular sheep were bedded on ferns, straw, and other plant material? Well, these expensive sheep, the Tarantine breed, were housed in stables with perforated board floors, so no mud, poop, urine, or VM would sully their wool. They were also better fed than other breeds, which may account for the quality of fleece. Seven Roman pounds, five modern U.S. pounds, and no, I'm not an expert on the difference, of hay or chaff per day per sheep, plus seven cups of barley or beans and nine cups of chickpeas each. And leaves were always available for between meal nosh. It goes without saying, but I'll say it anyway. Tarantines were not the breed of the people. Only rich people could afford to raise them, and only rich people could afford the wool. To paraphrase the little red hen, who shall work this wool into cloth? The Greek historian Xenophon commented on the importance of the wifely duty of weaving in his treatise on household management, Economicus. There he recounted a dialogue between his mentor Socrates and the wise Athenian Iscomachus, who lauded his young wife being the preeminent weaver in his household. Not all weaving was done in the home, however, and not all of it by wives. Specialty firms existed in classical Athens as early as the late 5th century BCE. There's evidence of an establishment that specialized in the clamus, which was a short cloak, and another whose specialty was the clanus, a cloak for the upper body, like the clana, but made of finer fabric. You know, when you look outside or ask someone what the weather's going to be like, so you can choose whether to wear your clanus or clana, as one does. In Italy, the fine white woolen cloth produced in the Po Valley by those Tarantine sheep called for skillful weaving, and factories established there employed highly trained slaves. Yep, I said the S word. A lot of weaving was done by slaves. From the first century CE, rich women had more to do with their spare time than work the loom alongside their slaves. Though the Empress Livia, the third and last wife of Caesar Augustus, tried to set an example of the womanly virtue that her husband promoted by working at the loom. In the towns and cities across the Roman Empire in the Augustan age, shops sold ready-made clothes both for freemen and slaves. Lest you think Oldest Navius and Roman Eagle were selling public stock, most Greeks and Romans weren't buying off the rack. They made their own clothes, yarn, and fabric. I don't think I need to explain how. I mean, if you're here, you're probably familiar. And if not, well, visit ballyhoofiberemporium.com slash podcast. The Greeks used two types of looms. One was a small, easily transportable loom used to produce girdles and relatively narrow swatches of cloth, similar, I think, to our rigid heddle looms. The other was a large vertical loom used to weave actual bolts of fabric for tunics or cloaks, including the Roman tunica recta, which a youth wore when he came of age and put on the toga of a man, also called toga virilis. 
The threads of the warp hung downward from the top of the loom and were held taut by loom weights. Vikings and Navajos use a similar type of loom, and I'm not sure what the official name is, but you'd know it if you saw it. Homer describes two weavers singing at their looms in his famous Odyssey. The nymph Calypso, who kept Odysseus prisoner until the gods commanded her to allow him to return home to Ithaca, and the witch Circe. In 1972, a statue of a fully clothed woman was excavated at a cemetery outside Athens. The lady has a really sad backstory, but she's remarkable because the paint on the statue is perfectly preserved. Her chitin was decorated with red, black, and yellow swastikas, considered good luck signs at the time, rosettes on the front, and four-pointed stars and various flowers on the back. Historians thought that Greek weavers couldn't produce patterned cloth. When Greek authors mentioned decorated robes, it was assumed that they were just embroidered. But this chitin proves that they were capable of making cloth with colorful patterns woven in. The peplos, which the women of Athens presented to Athena at every great Panathenia festival, must have been a patterned weave, and Athens wasn't the only place that regularly presented its guardian goddess with a new dress. In Elis, in the northwest, a peplos on which 16 women worked was presented at regular intervals to Hera, guardian goddess of that state. Homer's Iliad related that Helen of Troy wove a battle scene in color in her spare time. Excavations at a Roman fort at Vindolanda, which is near Hadrian's Wall in Britain, have recovered various fragments of textiles. Of 50 analyzed samples, eight of them had been dyed with matter, rubia tinctorum, the cheapest of the Roman dyes. This makes a lot of sense to me, since we know the Roman soldiers had red cloaks, right? And who was stationed in Britain? Yeah, Among the expensive dyes were various shades of purple made from the murex shellfish. Now, a cheaper purple could be obtained by combining matter red in the right proportions with indigo, which was being imported from India at the time. Cochinus, a brilliant scarlet made from the kermes, a scale insect, was in high demand as well as a luxury. It originated in Asia, but Spain also developed a lucrative industry, and it's still an industry today, although I think most of our cochinelle comes from islands. Don't quote me, we'll find out how wrong I am some other day. Other dyes were a strong green with a blue tinge called prasinus, a fairly bright red, russius, and dark blue, venetus. Ancient mordants included alum from wood ash, or even human urine and natron, which is sodium carbonate, or washing soda, which was dug from pits in Egypt. Dye and mordant processes compared with today's methods, so there's really nothing more to say about that. We're going to stop here for today, my lambs. Next week, we'll practice selecting and breeding sheep the Roman way and we'll explore the many uses of sheep and sheep byproducts in healing humans. That's right, it's our first foray into sheep and medicine. If you've enjoyed learning way too much about stuff you didn't even know you could care about, please subscribe, rate, and review. I know you hear it on every podcast. It really does help others find us, and we're kind of at a disadvantage since I'm starting over. So do me a solid and click those stars, okay? Thanks. 
Currently, show notes are available through the host site, Pippa, but to make it easier, I've linked to those notes on the Ovinology page at ballyhoofiberemporium.com slash ovinology. Also, don't forget to subscribe to the Patreon so you can see and hear the weekly farm update. That's patreon.com slash ovinology, where for as little as $1 a week, you will make this ad-free podcast possible. Just ask Lori Prestia, Melissa Huffman, Dakota R. Moore, and Matthew Clegg. Till next week, my gorgeous shepherds, don't graze under the olive trees with anyone else but me till sheep come marching home. Make the world a better place with sheep. Specifically, the settlement of Yabo. Yep. Specifically, the settlement of Yabo. Damn.